Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Welcome back to the Malibu Studios. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Back with Mark Sisson. And Mark, we promised last time that we would get into this a little bit more, the chronic cardio topic after you read that nice essay. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, important to get into some of the specifics and some of the details because there's still that that um, backlash that, well, Mark, you're beating a dead horse here, uh, that chronic cardio really isn't an issue for a lot of people. The fact that I, in my youth, trained 100 miles a week and went hard just about every day um, was sort of an anomaly. People don't do that anymore. They might have followed uh, Lydiard or Saruti or some of these other programs that are that are hard easy. But the fact is, anybody who's training more than you know, running more than 35 or 40 miles a week, uh, anybody who's cycling, you know, 200 miles a week, uh, even as a recreational athlete, ought to start paying attention to some of the signals here. Well, and including the other stress factors that we add up to. And then when you coach me, you would always mention that big picture where um, jet travel, traveling across time zones is extremely stressful. And you have to counter that with reduced training volume. Yeah, it's interesting about the jet travel because uh, I, I think, you know, we talk a lot about sleep being important uh, in terms of just general health. Well, sleep is tremendously important as an athlete because that's really when the recovery process, uh, you know, really kicks in. And uh, traveling across multiple time zones, which so many athletes do, really impacts sleep. So now you have not just your health as an as a average c- citizen uh, being affected by lack of sleep, but now your recovery as an athlete being affected by lack of sleep and by a a massive disruption in circadian rhythm and diurnal rhythm. So it requires some uh, steps like taking melatonin to readjust your uh, your your internal clock to get on a, a program of sleeping in the new time zone and things like that. But again, all of these are just they're 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 strategies that we need to sort of look at and incorporate if we want to maximize our fitness level and our health at the same time. And that's really the, the key here is I can, I can train you to be fit and, and I can overtrain you and you'll still be fit enough to race fast, but you won't be healthy. What I'm looking for for myself and I hope for, for most of the people that uh, come to Mark's Daily Apple and read the Primal Blueprint is, you know, how can I be as fit as possible and still be the healthiest I possibly can be? Uh, right. And so the jet travel is, is a great example, but also your busy, hectic schedule of important meetings on a particular day or a deadline week at work. These things have to be weighed on the same side of the balance scale as whatever mileage you're putting in. So even if you tell yourself a story like, well, I've cut down my marathon training from 50 miles this week to only 30 uh, because I've had nonstop meetings and deadline pressures, um, that, all, that all has to be thrown into the mix on the same side and sleep being on the other side and rest and relaxation. Yeah, those are all stresses. And Sometimes the body doesn't recognize uh, one stress over the other because what, what it's responding to is an increase in cortisol, an increase in epinephrine, 
um, uh, certain other hormonal changes, maybe a decrease in testosterone. Uh, and, and at some point, the body might not even know whether the stress came from uh, a meeting that ran late or a, uh, an interval session that went two intervals too long. So many roads lead to burnout is what you're saying. Yeah, and we, <laughs> exactly. And we get back to this, this notion that the, that the ideal way to train is, is, to, uh, is to be in, so intuitive about it that, you, that, yes, you can have a planned strategy and a planned workout program uh, and put in some key or breakthrough workouts every once in a while, but to be so in tune with your body to know that maybe it's, it's inappropriate to do the planned workout today based on how you feel or based on what's been going on in your life the prior week. It's that sense of intuition, that, that, that knowing when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate to train, that becomes probably the, the, the greatest skill that a, uh, certainly an age group athlete or, or a, an amateur athlete can have. Right. And we can all admit that on a dark, rainy night uh, in the wintertime when you really should go do a workout and you kind of need to get a little boost or you maybe don't feel like it right away, that's one thing. But when you're talking about a breakthrough workout, you have some different standards to ascribe to in terms of how rested and motivated you are, don't you? Yeah. Uh, we, we t- we've talked about the breakthrough workout in other podcasts, and I think um, – and, I'm, and I'm, you know, we talk about it in the upcoming book, Primal Endurance – but the idea that um, that it only takes a, a one or two significant, hard, well-planned, strategic uh, workouts to take you to a next level of fitness, to break through the plateau. So many people are stuck in a rut and they're running, uh, you know, 745 per, uh, per mile or they're riding at 20 miles an hour and they can't break through that 22 mile an hour plateau. Um, sometimes it takes backing off a little bit and being fully recovered and, and uh, rested and then going out and choosing to go extra, extra hard in a breakthrough workout one time. Uh, and if done right and if reco- recovered appropriately from that workout, you can break through that plateau and, and now you've reset your benchmark. Instead of 745, now you're running 730 a mile in all of your uh, long training runs or in your races. Or instead of riding 20 miles an hour, now you can, now you can maintain 22 miles an hour on a bike for extended periods of time. Um, and the, the irony is it doesn't take, this, this doesn't happen from training hard every single day. It, it, it comes from picking and choosing specific appropriate workouts, some of which are high intensity, some of which are long, steady, very easy workouts, and then, and then planning that breakthrough day where that one day you say, okay, I'm fully rested, I'm fully recovered, I'm stoked, I'm psyched, today's the day I'm going to do it. And once you break through, you can maintain that with like 40% of the effort it took to get there. Right. So the term breakthrough is appropriate because it implies that you're rested and energized before it and ready for a breakthrough performance. Now, in contrast, and this has happened at the last two primal cons, two separate people have come up to me and said, uh, well, so I do CrossFit six days a week and, and, and right there I'll stop you, whoever you are, and say, look, if you're doing such a challenging workout six days a week, by definition, each of those workouts are mediocre. Yeah, you can't possibly do a, have a breakthrough doing that because you're never fully recovered from not just the previous day's workout, but maybe from the previous two or three weeks of working out. This idea that we train to become fit, uh, we have to always bear in mind what does it take to become fit? It, it takes a signal being sent to the genes to increase muscle strength, muscle mass, uh, uh, explosive power, athletic, but whatever, 
whatever you're trying to accomplish, there are these biochemical signals that cause the genetic material to upregulate certain enzyme systems and make you stronger as a result of that stress. But it requires backing off. It requires rest. It requires, it requires recovery time. And if all you ever do is continue to accumulate stress and never allow the, the signaling and the growth as a result of that to, to fully be expressed... You just become this accumulation of stress and sometimes an accumulation of, of, of uh, injury and uh, overtraining. So the, the six days a week of CrossFit is a great example where somebody can, you know, the body gets used to doing those motions, but it never really breaks through to the next plateau because you haven't allowed it the time to, to recover and to grow from the prior experiences. Uh, speaking of that and also speaking of intuition, as we've discussed... Everybody's different, and I'm reading a great book right now called The Sports Gene, and they, they're talking about the genetic science of trainability and how some people can adapt and respond to training differently than other people, and then some people might have you know, natural genetic gifts that are different than other people. Jim Ryan, the great miler, was a great uh, mention there because in middle school, he was a middle-of-the-pack or back-of-the-pack distance runner. He was terrible. And he became, in a very short time, the greatest high school distance runner of all time and one of the great milers of all time. So when you're trying to identify what training is right for you, it has to be totally individualized. And you have to step out of the conventional wisdom, let's say, or, or the, the going rate for how many CrossFits per week work well. Well, it comes back to how well you recover. And I've said this for the longest period of time, that there's for any given sport, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who are probably genetically able to do the workouts. But there are very few who have the ability to recover from those workouts quickly enough to go on to the next level and the next plateau. So in some regards, this genetic uh, differentiation has, has as much to do with the ability to recover from training as it does with the configuration of fast twitch, slow twitch fibers and, and body shape and size. And um, for myself, I remember, Brad, when you and I were uh, training together, I was the coach, you were the pro athlete. I, would, I recognized that I was already into my late 30s and I could do the same workouts you could do. I just couldn't do them on a regular basis the way you So you could do a hard ride you know, on a Monday and come back. Uh, easy on a Tuesday and go on a Wednesday. I could do that same hard ride on a Monday. It would take me till Thursday or Friday until my body would have recovered enough to go do the next hard workout that was going to be required of a breakthrough. Yeah, that's because you had to run along and, and go do an honest job while the rest of us went back home and took a nap. So big difference there. Um, but that's a good point. I, I want to say that um, you know a, a transformation point in my own career, uh, when I went up and trained with Mike Pig, who was, who was the top guy in the world and the hardest working triathlete you've ever met in your life. And I came home so discouraged. You were my coach again. And I just said, you know, I can never last with this guy. He's superhuman. He wakes up at 6 a.m. and he goes nonstop for nine hours. The only stop is for food and, you know, to pump the tires back up in the bike for the, the, the other 50 miles of the 100-mile ride. And I just thought that, you know, I would, I would never be in the same league as, 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 a, as a guy like that. But you said, look, why don't you just compare to him on your best day rather than every single day? And I realized that I could focus and hone in on this breakthrough workout technique that I could put together a phenomenal performance one day a week as long as you gave me the next two or three or four days of just easy, moderate training. Yeah, 
And so that brings us back to the discussion of chronic cardio and, and the idea that if you're going hard every day and if you're asking your heart to pump, uh, you know, to fuel the muscles doing an activity that really isn't going to contribute to your overall fitness, but it may in fact lead to your overstressed, overexercised, overtrained demise, there's a danger there beyond just not getting fitter. There's a danger there of losing your health. Right, and here's a quote I want to pull out from your post and your, your recent podcast essay. You said, quote, The silent epidemic of heart issues among endurance athletes is getting serious attention in the research community. And this has been an issue of great concern for you and I, particularly because it's involved many of our friends and former peers on the elite triathlon circuit. So I think the average athlete deserves to know what is going on here because it's deeply disturbing what's happening to some of these fittest specimens who've ever existed on the planet. And I, I don't want to be morbid here or go off and, and you know belabor this too much, but I really think it's important to mention a few of these cases from the registry that you maintain of top athletes who've been stricken with heart conditions. And probably the most disturbing to me is the Steve Larson story because this is a guy one of the nicest, most energetic guys you'd ever meet, and one of the most versatile and accomplished endurance athletes we've ever had in this country. He rode as a professional cyclist in the big European tours on Lance Armstrong's team back in the day. Then he moved off of the cycling and became a pro mountain biker and very quickly became a world champion in mountain bike racing. Then he looked for a new challenge. He turned to triathlon, picked up the swimming and running, and became a world champion in the mountain bike triathlon category. And then out in Hawaii Ironman, he set an all-time record for the fastest bike split ever in Hawaii and on many other courses all over the tri-circuit. Um, and when I was producing the world's toughest half Ironman in Auburn, California, he came to my town one day and just blew the field away, drove down from Bend, Oregon, and you know drove back home right after the race back into his busy life. And then at the age of 39, he was doing a track workout in Bend, and he collapsed and died. And he left a wife and four children. He was still racing at the elite level at the age of 39, unlike you who were off into the, the working world. He was racing on the pro circuit, and he had a real estate business up there, and he had various sporting interests and investments that he was managing. He was literally superhuman until he dropped. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's a really sad story. I remember it very well, but it's unfortunately it's not isolated. Following on the registry is Ryan Shea, one of America's top marathon runners. He collapsed and died at mile seven on the streets of New York City during the 2012 Olympic marathon trials. They found that his heart literally exploded and he died instantly. Um, one of my old time running rivals in Northern California, Brian Maxwell. At one time, I think Brian was ranked like third in the world. Um, he was a 214 marathoner, great guy, um, used to run against him all the time. Um, <laughs> you know, interesting story. He, he was one of those guys who was looking for an alternative to Gatorade on the, on, the, um, on the run course. And so he and his girlfriend at the time, Jennifer, later to become his wife, uh, mixed up this goop of stuff that they would eat during the run. They called it Power Bar. Uh, within, uh, you know, I think, not that the rest is history, but Brian became extremely successful as a businessman, sold Power Bar to Nestle for hundreds of millions of dollars. Then at the age of 51, uh, he collapsed of a heart attack in a post office one day. And, uh, you know, so there, the, the notion that his lifestyle conferred some uh, ultimate uh, uh, longevity, you know, benefit on him it, it immediately evaporates. 
So we're starting to get the point here, but I also want to mention uh, several other elite multi-sport athletes who've been forced to retire in recent years due to bad hearts. Norman Stadler, who was the two-time Hawaii Ironman world champion, he had emergency surgery one day for an aortic aneurysm and immediately retired from competition. Uh, Torbjorn Sinbale from Denmark, one of the fastest bikers ever in the sport and one of the leading Ironman contenders. I think he's been on the podium in Hawaii, also announced a, a sudden retirement in the last couple of years. Um, Welchie, Greg Welch, one of the greatest triathletes ever, no doubt the athlete with the best competitive attitude and carefree personality I've ever seen. Just a great guy, happy-go-lucky guy. He won world titles at Hawaii Ironman. He won at Olympic distance. He also won at duathlon, so probably the most versatile elite triathlete ever. Well, in his retirement, he's endured 10 heart surgeries. He, he had to move to L.A. just to be closer to the hospital from San Diego. I think he's still back um, and, and doing okay and stabilized. But he's had a, a, a terrible battle that started with a VTAC incident on the race course in Hawaii when his heart started fluttering out of control. Um, Hamish Carter, who's another guy who had a great career. He won the gold medal in triathlon for New Zealand. He retired with a heart condition. And when I was reading his story, um, they also mentioned three other legendary Kiwi endurance athletes with heart problems, including Peter Snell, who was one of the great middle distance runners of all time, Olympic gold medalist, and also today has made a name for himself as one of the top exercise physiologists uh, out of Dallas, Texas these days. Um, I also have to mention Johnny G. He was a good friend of mine. I trained with him out on the roads, and we did the long rides. Um, he was the creator of the spinning indoor cycling program, so he's a big celebrity in the fitness scene. He also finished the grueling race across America, a nonstop bicycle race from coast to coast. And he had emergency surgery one day to install a pacemaker in his heart. The same thing happened with uh, the Southern Cal triathlon legend Mark Montgomery. Yeah, and let's not forget uh, one of the great distance runners this country has ever produced, Alberto Salazar, um, who was uh, coaching at the Nike campus in Oregon, uh, where he, he coaches other athletes, and, and just literally one day collapsed and died. He was dead for 14 minutes before the paramedics brought him back to life, and then died a few more times on the way to the hospital. He's alive today, and um, you know, thank God for that. But again, the idea that that he would be the fittest guy, you know, amazing marathoner, uh, tremendous feats of, of athletic uh, prowess and endurance. But, you know, Alberto also collapsed as a young man at the Falmouth Road Race in the late 70s, early 80s, um, and was, according to legend, was given his last rights at that race, too. So it just, uh, it's, it's crazy. By the way, this isn't just a male thing. There was a, one of the most accomplished female triathletes ever, Emma Carney of Australia, she was forced to retire with a heart condition. Uh, I think she was 37. Maddie Tormoen, the world duathlon, female duathlon uh, champion. Uh, same thing. I think she has a, a defibrillator uh, installed. The, the important point here is for listeners to reflect upon everyone who's mentioned here, and this is really only a partial list. They all had something in common. They, they were so good at pushing themselves to and beyond the limits of human endurance, forcing their hearts to beat at a consistently high level for hours and hours, day after day, year after year. So, again, the heart has no say. The heart can't say, wait a minute, this is not a good idea. It's the brain telling the legs and the arms to start swinging and moving and, and working hard. And the heart just says, okay, I got to do what, what I got to do. And at some point, the heart muscle gets so thick that it gets scarred. And that the innervation that happens within that within that uh, muscle wall gets compromised, and then we start to get into problems. 
And again, since since probably most of our listeners aren't engaged in pushing the body to the limits of human endurance, but as we just spoke about, if you're balancing a career and family life and personal responsibilities with an enthusiastic fitness program of whatever level, even if it's uh, comparatively moderate compared to the guys on the list, you are putting yourself into a generally chronic pattern of stress, no different from an elite athlete. Yeah, this excess cortisol production and the systemic inflammation, um, you, can, you can get it in a number of different ways. So if you're leading a busy life, if you're driven to achieve success in the workplace or with fitness goals, it's time to take a step back and go, hey, um, you know, what's, what is the pot of gold at the end of this rainbow? You know, why am I training so hard? Why am I working so hard? You know, is it worth the potential compromises, not just in my own physical health, but in my relationships and 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 my mood, um, and potentially my bank account, if I have if I do encounter these these um, health issues later on in life, and you know I want to say one other thing that really bugs me about these stories the 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 fallen athletes that have heart problems and and this and that, and almost every time the story comes out that the athlete had some genetic defect, and and so that's why this thing came about. Oh, and, you know, they had surgery or they had the treatment and, and they lived to tell about it. And the reason they lived is because they're so strong and fit and their heart is so strong. Somebody and, else would have died. Yeah, Right, right. And it's um, I, obviously for me to, to talk here about a medical diagnosis, it's irresponsible. I don't have any grounds to say it. But it becomes fishy to me when the story keeps coming out that these athletes were just unlucky with their genetics and it didn't have any consequence related to their extreme training patterns. Well, I, I think we're seeing in the uh, in the cardiology community a lot more recognition that uh, that that's not necessarily the case. That it is possible to train too hard and to compromise the the health of the heart as a result of that training, um, and and it is certainly to compromise the health of joints. I mean, you know, so much has has been we've been talking about the cardiac health here, where in, when in fact we ought to be talking also about orthopedic health or. Uh, digestive health uh, or immune function. I mean, <laughs> you know, we talked about all of the stuff that can happen at, a, at an event. And I remember, you remember Julianne White? She wound up finishing an Ironman and, speaking of digestive issues, and wound up uh, having uh, a part of her colon removed as a result of ischemia, that is lack of blood flow to the bowel for the amount of time that she had been work- working hard, c- competing and, and winning an event. So there are so many other aspects of health that that fall under this umbrella of chronic cardio and what happens as a result of doing too much of this that ought to be acknowledged uh, once again with the idea that hey what are you trying to do I'm trying to be as I'm trying to be fit I want if I want to race faster the question I should ask myself is not how much miles can I put in and not collapse but what are the workouts that I can do to bring my time down and still be healthy and have a relationship and have a job that I can that I can succeed at Okay, so along those lines, why don't you go back? There was some good material on Mark Stingley Apple that you could read that's sort of pointing toward a solution now that we've talked about the negativity and the, and the, uh, the health problems enough. Right, so I'm going to read some of the comments that are a mix of, of a few different postings and even some back and forth in the reader comments. I hereby give you permission to leave the life of chronic cardio for the promise of less time, more muscle, and better health. Of course, I'm certainly not advocating giving up all training, just that problematic, unnecessary type. 
If you're worried that cutting back will compromise your body composition goals, let me remind you that your ability to reduce excess body fat and maintain your ideal body composition depends 80% on what and how you eat. Namely, moderating the excessive production of insulin by eliminating grains and sugars from your diet. Eating primally will retrain your energy systems to burn fat and not glucose. Cutting out all simple carbs is pretty much the key. It's about insulin management. If you can readjust the diet to encourage the body to burn fats, you won't need to replenish lost glycogen every day. You'll always burn fats and you'll always have energy. The low-level aerobic stuff becomes filler. So you'll only do it if it's fun, like a hike or a walk with friends or golf or mountain biking. The real muscle growth will come from the short anaerobic bursts like sprints, intervals, or weight training. For example, a well-formulated CrossFit workout will accomplish more in 20 to 30 minutes than most of the gym rats doing 90-minute weight sessions, not to mention lengthy aerobic sessions day after day. In our cardio-addicted culture, it can sound too good, too simple to be true. But the science and the research is there, folks. Short interval exercise like sprints or strength training can offer the same fitness benefits and then some compared with traditional endurance training. Take this study via Science Daily via McMaster University. In the context of six training sessions during a two-week study period, half the college-age subjects did 90 to 120 minutes per session of a continuous moderate-intensity cycling routine, while the other half did between four and six 30-second intensive cycling bursts. At the end of the two-week study period, the endurance cycling subjects had each invested 10 and a half hours. The intensive interval subjects had invested just two and a half hours, yet the improvements in fitness and performance and muscle parameters were the same. A study from the University of New South Wales followed the fitness and body composition changes in 45 overweight women in a 15-week period. The women were divided into two groups and assigned interval or continuous cycling routines. The interval sprint cycling group performed 20 minutes of exercise, which repeated 8 seconds of all-out cycling and then 12 seconds of light exercise. The continuous group exercised for 40 minutes at a consistent rate. Now, at the end of the study, the women in the interval group had lost three times the body fat of the women in the continuous exercise group. An interesting note here, the interval group's loss in body fat came mostly from the legs and buttocks area. The study's organizers, in their presentations to the Heart Foundation and American College of Sports Medicine, discussed the role of sprinting in metabolic response. Intense interval training, they said, results in higher levels of catecholamines, a compound related to fat oxidation. You want to hear even more? Another collaborative study organized by universities and health institutes in Denmark and Japan highlighted the same distinction in fat oxidation between prolonged continuous exercise and shorter intense interval routines. In addition to additional fat oxidation, the study's results linked interval exercise with lower plasma glucose, increased epinephrine response, lower insulin concentration, and increased fat oxidation during the recovery period. Don't you love this stuff? Folks, this is groundbreaking news. Now, I just scratch my head at why we keep running ourselves ragged. The message is out there, but it's not reaching people. Let's send you packing with a memorable soundbite that might help you design a more effective training program. With regard to how much is too much, I'm going to suggest that you should burn no more than 4,000 calories through focused exercise over the course of a week. 
Is this a hard and fast rule? No, not exactly. Going somewhat above is probably okay. Is it concretely established in numerous studies? Well, there are hints toward its veracity in the literature, but nothing explicit. This is mostly stuff gleaned through experience, but the research does bear it out. Does it apply to everyone everywhere, whatever their goals may be? No. Someone training for a Hawaii Ironman triathlon is going to require more if they hope to compete. But as a general rule for the general population, it really does work well as a guideline. Burning 4,000 calories through focused exercise appears to be the cutoff point. Yeah, you could go a bit over under, but the point is that we need to draw a line somewhere. After which, health, including immune function and oxidative stress load, and quality of life, including free time, energy levels, and productivity, begin to take hits. Your performance may increase, and this might be worth it to you if your goals are primarily performance-oriented, but there's a trade-off. Keith Norris often writes about this idea, calling it the health performance curve, and I'm inclined to agree with him. So, what does 4,000 calories worth of expenditure a week look like, exactly? Well, the simplest way I've found to describe it is in terms of road miles. If you're doing 40 miles a week of running or 80 miles a week of cycling, you're hitting roughly 4,000 calories. We don't just run or bike, of course. We lift weights, we train circuits, we engage in metabolic conditioning, we row, we wrestle, we hike, we sprint, we box, we swim. You could use an online calculator like FitDay or XREX to get a better idea for an 85-pound, 6-foot-tall person to burn just 4,000 calories a week. He could get away with this, running 6 miles lifting weights intensely for two hours total, biking 13 miles, playing an hour and a half of soccer, rugby, football, or ultimate frisbee. Now that's a pretty solid week of activity, I'd say, but it certainly isn't excessive, and it would provide far more well-rounded sense of fitness than just pounding away at the road for 40 miles. Feel free to use the admittedly imperfect tools linked to above to figure out what your regular caloric expenditure looks like. Not all activity counts toward your caloric expenditure. Taking a 30-minute stroll to the store doesn't count as focused work. Taking a 60-minute hike up the hill does. Going for a nice relaxing bike ride on the bike around the neighborhood doesn't count, but doing 20 miles in a single day does. Carrying the groceries from the car to the house doesn't count. Carrying the groceries from the store to the house just might, though you know it when you see it applies here, so use your better judgment. I'd also suggest that expending your calories through a variety of activities is better than expending them through a single activity. As shown above, lifting weights, going for a run, biking a bit, playing sports is more fun and probably less stressful than expending all your calories through running, which is veering into chronic cardio anyway. A calorie expended is not necessarily a calorie expended. Look, exercise as often and as intensely as it pleases you. Just be aware that in my opinion, and having looked at the literature and drawn from my own experience training myself and others, 4,000 calories of focused work per week is the cutoff point after which health and happiness do begin to suffer for most people. If you're an athlete whose only job is to train and you're privy to massages and cutting-edge recovery techniques and everything else, then you'll probably be able to handle more work. You'll be far fitter than the average person and thus better equipped to mitigate the oxidative fallout from excessive exercise. But for members of the general population who have to contend with the day-to-day -day stress of living in this world, getting up early to feed the kids and beat traffic, balancing exercise time with work time, with family time and personal time, sneaking peeks at the latest blog, hoping to get enough sleep to make it through the day, well, you're going to have a harder time working to recover from the stress of a 4,000 calorie expenditure than it's worth your while. 
Mark, thanks again for some more great points from Mark Stanley Apple Summaries and for talking with us today about chronic cardio. Until next time, I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Thank you so much for listening to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson. Hey, podcasts are great, but how about a life-changing weekend at PrimalCon? Coming up is the historic occasion of our fifth annual event in Oxnard that's on the beach in Southern California at the amazing Embassy Suites Mandalay Beach Resort. It's about an hour north of Los Angeles, one of the best-kept secrets in Southern California, this resort right on the sands of the beautiful beach town of Oxnard. And we have an amazing park there, an expanse of grass and all kinds of fun stuff to play on. So we'll be spending a fun weekend outdoors with an awesome slate of presenters talking and presenting on all manner of physical activity, diet, health, nutrition, posture and movement mechanics, all kinds of topics covered. So you'll get a great education from the world's leading experts, but we'll also have a ton of fun and excitement. Of course, we're going to play the annual Survivor Team Challenge, just like you see on TV, except this one is more fun, more challenging. It includes brain teasers and good team strategy challenges. We're also going to have, of course, the world-famous PrimalCon Ocean Plunge slash Jacuzzi Sprint. So you're going to run into the pretty cold ocean, guaranteed. And then about a two-minute sprint where we take over the entire jacuzzi at the Mandalay Beach Resort. People look at us like we're crazy, but it's tons of fun. And then we're going to dine on the all-time fabulous PrimalCon food, which you can see all kinds of pictures of on the website. So visit PrimalBlueprint.com. Look for the PrimalCon link. You can see pictures and videos chronicling the wonderful times we've had in Oxnard over the past four years. And we certainly hope you can join us for the fifth annual PrimalCon Oxnard, September 25th through 28th, 2014.